Chapter Nine, Part One of Knots Untied by J. C. Ryle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Chapter Nine: The Real Presence, Part One. If thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. Exodus Chapter Thirty Three, Verse Fifteen. There is a word in that text that heads this page, which demands the attention of all English Christians in this day. That word is presence. There is a religious subject bound up with that word, on which it is most important to have clear, distinct, and scriptural views. That subject is the presence of God, and specially the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ with Christian people. What is that presence? Where is that presence? What is the nature of that presence? To these questions I propose to supply answers. 1. I shall consider, first, the general doctrine of God's presence in the world. Second, I shall consider, secondly, the special doctrine of Christ's real spiritual presence. Three, I shall consider, thirdly, the special doctrine of Christ's real bodily presence. The whole subject deserves serious thought. If we suppose that this is a mere question of controversy, which only concerns theological partisans, we have yet much to learn. It is a subject which lies at the very roots of saving religion. It is a subject which is inseparably tied up with one of the most precious articles of the Christian faith. It is a subject about which it is most dangerous to be wrong. An error here may first lead a man to the Church of Rome, and then land him finally in the gulf of infidelity. Surely it is worth while to examine carefully the doctrine of the presence of God and of his Christ. 1. The first subject we have to consider is the general doctrine of God's presence in the world. The teaching of the Bible on this point is clear, plain, and unmistakable. God is everywhere. There is no place in heaven or earth where he is not. There is no place in air or land or sea, no place above ground or underground, no place in town or country, no place in Europe, Asia, Africa, or America, where God is not always present. Enter into your closet and lock the door. God is there. Climb to the top of the highest mountain, where not even an insect moves. God is there. Sail to the most remote island of the Pacific Ocean, where the foot of man never trod. God is there. He is always near us, seeing, hearing, observing, knowing every action, and deed, and word, and whisper, and look, and thought, and motive, and secret of every one of us, and everywhere. What saith the scripture? It is written in Job, His eyes are upon the ways of man, and he seeth all his goings. There is no darkness, no shadow of death, where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. Job chapter 34 verse 21. It is written in Proverbs, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Proverbs chapter 15 verse 3. It is written in Jeremiah, Thine eyes are open upon all the ways of the sons of men, to give every one according to the fruit of his doings. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 19. It is written in the Psalms, Thou knowest my downsitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassed my past and my lying down, and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Whither shall I flee from thy presence? 
if i ascend up into heaven thou art there if i make my bed in hell behold thou art there if i take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me if i say surely the darkness shall cover me even the night shall be light about me yea the darkness hideth not from thee but the night shineth as the day the darkness and the light are both alike to thee psalm 139 verses 2 to 12 such language as this confounds and overwhelms us the doctrine before us is one which we cannot fully understand precisely so david said the same thing about it almost three thousand years ago such knowledge is too wonderful for me it is high i cannot attain unto it psalm 139 verse 6 but it does not follow that the doctrine is not true because we cannot understand it it is the weakness of our poor minds and intellects that we must blame and not the doctrine there are scores of things in the world around us which few can understand or explain yet no sensible man refuses to believe how this earth is ever rolling round the sun with enormous swiftness while we feel no motion how the moon affects the tides and makes them rise and fall twice every twenty-four hours how millions of perfectly organized living creatures exist in every pint of pond water which our naked eye cannot see all these are things well known to men of science while most of us could not explain them for our lives and shall we in the face of such facts presume to doubt that god is everywhere present for no better reason than this that we cannot understand it let us never dare to say so again how many things there are about god himself which we cannot possibly understand and yet we must believe them unless so senseless as to be atheists who can explain the eternity of god the infinite power and wisdom of god or the works of god in creation and providence who can comprehend a being who is a spirit without body parts or passions how can a material creature who can only be in one place at one time take in the idea of an immaterial being who existed before creation who formed this world by his word out of nothing and who can be everywhere and see everything at one and the same time where in a word is there a single attribute of god that mortal men can thoroughly comprehend where then is the common sense or wisdom of refusing to believe the doctrine of god being present everywhere merely because our minds cannot take it in well says the book of job canst thou by searching find out god canst thou find out the almighty unto perfection it is high as heaven what canst thou do deeper than hell what canst thou know job chapter 11 verses 7 and 8 let us have high and honourable thoughts of the god with whom we have to do while we live and before whose bar we must stand when we die let us seek to have just notions of his power his wisdom his eternity his holiness his perfect knowledge his presence everywhere one half the sin committed by mankind arises from wrong views of their maker and judge men are reckless and wicked because they do not think that god sees them they do things they would never do if they really believed they were under the eyes of the almighty it is written thou thoughtest that i was altogether such a one as thyself psalm 50 verse 21 it is written again 
They say the Lord shall not see, neither shall the God of Jacob regard it. Understand, ye brutish among the people, and ye fools, when will ye be wise? He that planteth the ear, shall he not hear? He that formed the eye, shall he not see? Psalm 94, verses 7 to 9. No wonder that holy Job said in his best moments, When I consider it, I am afraid of him. Job chapter 23, verse 15. What is your God like? said a sneering infidel one day to a poor Christian. What is this God of yours like, this God about whom you make such ado? Is he great or is he small? My God, was the wise reply, is a great and a small God at the same time, so great that the heaven of heavens cannot contain him, and yet so small that he can dwell in the heart of a poor sinner like me. Where is your God, my boy? said another infidel to a child whom he saw coming out of a school where the Bible was taught. Where is your God about whom you have been reading? Show him to me, and I will give you an orange. Show me where he is not, was the answer, and I will give you, too. My God is everywhere. Well, it is said in a certain place, God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise. Second Corinthians chapter 1 verse 27, Matthew chapter 21 verse 16. However hard to understand this doctrine may be, it is one which is most useful and wholesome for our souls. To keep continually in mind that God is always present with us, to live always as in God's sight, to act and speak and think as under his eye, all this is eminently calculated to have a good effect upon our souls. Wide and deep and searching and piercing is the influence of that one thought, Thou God seest me. A. The thought of God's presence is a loud call to humility. How much that is evil and defective must the all-seeing eye see in every one of us? How small a part of our character is really known by man? Man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. Man does not always see us, but the Lord is always looking at us, morning, noon, and night. Who has not need to say, God be merciful to me, a sinner? B. The thought of God's presence is a crushing proof of our need of Jesus Christ. What hope of salvation could we have if there was not a mediator between God and man? Before the eye of an ever-present God, our best righteousness is filthy rags, and our best doings are full of imperfection. Where should we be if there was not a fountain open for all sin, even the blood of Christ? Without Christ, the prospect of death, judgment, and eternity would drive us to despair. C. The thought of God's presence teaches the folly of hypocrisy in religion. What can be more silly and childish than to wear a mere cloak of Christianity while we inwardly cleave to sin, when God is ever looking at us and sees us through and through? It is easy to deceive ministers and fellow Christians, because they often see us only upon Sundays. But God sees us morning, noon, and night, and cannot be deceived. Oh, whatever we are in religion, let us be real and true. D. The thought of God's presence is a check and curb on the inclination to sin. The recollection that there is one always near us and observing us, who will one day have a reckoning with all mankind, may well keep us back from evil. 
happy are those sons and daughters who when they leave the family home and launch forth into the world carry with them the abiding remembrance of god's eye my father and mother do not see me but god does this was the feeling that preserved joseph when tempted in a foreign land how can i do this great wickedness and sin against god genesis chapter thirty nine verse nine e the thought of god's presence is a spur to the pursuit of true holiness the highest standard of sanctification is to walk with god as enoch did and to walk before god as abraham did where is the man who would not strive to live so as to please god if he realized that god was always standing at his right hand to get away from god is the secret aim of the sinner to get nearer to god is the longing desire of the saint the real servants of the lord are a people near unto him psalm one hundred and forty eight verse fourteen f the thought of god's presence is a comfort in time of public trouble when war and famine and pestilence break in upon a land when the nations are rent and torn by inward divisions and all order seems in peril it is cheering to reflect that god sees and knows and is close at hand that the king of kings is near and not asleep he that saw the spanish armada sail to invade england and scattered it with the breath of his mouth he that looked on when the schemers of the gunpowder plot were planning the destruction of parliament this god is not changed g the thought of god's presence is a strong consolation in private trial we may be driven from home and native land and placed at the other side of the world we may be bereaved of wife and children and friends and left alone in our family like the last tree in a forest but we can never go to any place where god is not and under no circumstances can we be left entirely alone such thoughts as these are useful and profitable for us all that man must be in a poor state of soul who does not feel them to be so let it be a settled principle in our religion never to forget that in every condition and place we are under the eye of god it need not frighten us if we are true believers the sins of all believers are cast behind god's back and even the all-seeing god sees no spot in them it ought to cheer us if our christianity is genuine and sincere we can then appeal to god with confidence like david and say search me o god and know my heart try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting psalm 139 verses 23 and 24 great is the mystery of god's presence everywhere but the true man of god can look at it without fear two the second thing which i propose to consider is the real spiritual presence of our lord jesus christ in considering this branch of our subject we must carefully remember that we are speaking of one who is god and man in one person we are speaking of one who in infinite love to our souls took man's nature and was born of the virgin mary was crucified dead and buried to be a sacrifice for our sins and yet never ceased for a moment to be very god the peculiar presence of this blessed person our lord jesus christ with his church is the point which i want to unfold in this part of my paper i want to show that he is really and truly present with his believing people spiritually or after the manner of a spirit and that his presence is one of the grand privileges of a true christian 
what then is the real spiritual presence of christ and wherein does it consist let us see a there is a real spiritual presence of christ with that church which is his mystical body the blessed company of all faithful people this is the meaning of that parting saying of our lord to his apostles i am with you alway even unto the end of the world matthew chapter twenty eight verse twenty to the visible church of christ that saying did not strictly belong rent by divisions defiled by heresies disgraced by superstitions and corruptions the visible church has often given mournful proof that christ does not always dwell in it many of its branches in the course of years like the churches of asia have decayed and passed away it is the holy catholic church composed of god's elect the church of which every member is truly sanctified the church of believing and penitent men and women this is the church to which alone strictly speaking the promise belongs this is the church in which there is always a real spiritual presence of christ there is not a visible church on earth however ancient and well ordered which is secure against falling away scripture and history alike testify that like the jewish church it may become corrupt and depart from the faith and departing from the faith may die and why is this simply because christ has never promised to any visible church that he will be with it always even unto the end of the world the word that he inspired st paul to write to the roman church is the same word that he sends to every visible church throughout the world whether episcopal presbyterian or congregational be not high-minded but fear continue in god's goodness otherwise thou also shalt be cut off romans chapter eleven verses twenty to twenty two footnote whatsoever we read in scripture concerning the endless love and the saving mercy which god shows toward his church the only subject thereof is this church which is the mystical body of christ concerning this flock it is that our lord and saviour hath promised i give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish neither shall any pluck them out of my hand hooker ecclesiastical polity book three chapter one page two these are wise words and words that all hooker's professed admirers would do well to ponder and digest few things are so mischievous as the common habit of applying to such mixed and corrupt bodies as visible churches those blessed promises of perpetuity and preservation which belong to none but the company of true believers and footnote on the other hand the perpetual presence of christ with that holy catholic church which is his body is the great secret of its continuance and security it lives on and cannot die because jesus christ is in the midst of it it is a ship tossed with storm and tempest but it cannot sink because christ is on board its members may be persecuted oppressed imprisoned robbed beaten beheaded or burned but his true church is never extinguished it lives on through fire and water when crushed in one land it springs up in another the pharaohs the herods the neros the julians the bloody marys the charles the ninths have labored in vain to destroy this church they slay their thousands and then go to their own place the true church outlives them all it is a bush that is often burning and yet is never consumed and what is the reason of all this it is the perpetual presence of jesus christ b 
there is a real spiritual presence of Christ in the heart of every true believer. This is what St. Paul meant when he speaks of Christ dwelling in the heart by faith. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 17. This is what our Lord meant when he says of the man that loves him and keeps his word, we will come unto him and make our abode with him. John chapter 14 verse 23. In every believer, whether high or low, or rich or poor, or young or old, or feeble or strong, the Lord Jesus dwells and keeps up his work of grace by the power of the Holy Ghost. As he dwells in the whole church, which is his body, keeping, guarding, preserving, and sanctifying it, so does he continually dwell in every member of that body, in the least as well as in the greatest. This presence is the secret of all that peace and hope and joy and comfort which believers feel. All spring from their having a divine tenant within their hearts. This presence is the secret of their continuance in the faith and perseverance unto the end. In themselves they are weak and unstable as water, but they have within them one who is able to save to the uttermost and will not allow his work to be overthrown. Not one bone of Christ's mystical work shall ever be broken. Not one lamb of Christ's flock shall ever be plucked out of his hand. The house in which Christ is pleased to dwell, though it be but a cottage, is one which the devil shall never break into and make his own. C. There is a real spiritual presence of Christ, wherever his believing people meet together in his name. This is the plain meaning of that famous saying, Wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. The smallest gathering of true Christians for the purpose of prayer or praise or holy conference or reading God's word is sanctified by the best of company. The great or rich or noble may not be there, but the King of Kings himself is present, and angels look on with reverence. The grandest buildings that men have reared for religious uses are often no better than whitened sepulchres, destitute of any holy influence, because given up to superstitious ceremonies, and filled to no purpose with crowds of formal worshippers, who come unfeeling, and go unfeeling away. No worship is of any use to souls at which Christ is not present. Incense, banners, pictures, flowers, crucifixes, and long processions of richly dressed ecclesiastics are a poor substitute for the great high priest himself. The meanest room where a few penitent believers assemble in the name of Jesus is a consecrated and most holy place in the sight of God. They that worship God in spirit and truth never draw near him in vain. Often they go home from such meetings warmed, cheered, stabilized, strengthened and comforted, and refreshed. And what is the secret of their feelings? They have had with them the great master of assemblies, even Christ himself. D. There is a real spiritual presence of Christ with the hearts of all true-hearted communicants in the Lord's Supper. Rejecting, as I do, with all my heart, the baseless notion of any bodily presence of Christ on the Lord's table, I can never doubt that the great ordinance appointed by Christ has a special and peculiar blessing attached to it. That blessing, I believe, consists in a special and peculiar presence of Christ, vouchsafed to the heart of every believing communicant. That truth appears to me to lie under those wonderful words of institution, Take, eat, this is my body. Drink ye all of this, this is my blood. These words were never meant to teach that the bread in the Lord's Supper was literally Christ's body, 
or the wine literally Christ's blood. But our Lord did mean to teach that every right-hearted believer who ate that bread and drank that wine in remembrance of Christ would in so doing find a special presence of Christ in his heart, and a special revelation of Christ's sacrifice of his own body and blood to his soul. In a word, there is a spiritual presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper, which they only know who are faithful communicants, and which they who are not communicants miss altogether. After all, the experience of all the best servants of Christ is the best proof that there is a spiritual blessing attached to the Lord's Supper. You will rarely find a true believer who will not say that he reckons this ordinance one of his greatest helps and highest privileges. He will tell you that if he was deprived of it, he would find the loss of it a great drawback to his soul. He will tell you that in eating that bread and drinking that cup, he realizes something of Christ dwelling in him, and finds his repentance deepened, his faith increased, his knowledge enlarged, his graces strengthened. Eating the bread with faith, he feels closer communion with the body of Christ. Drinking the wine with faith, he feels closer communion with the blood of Christ. He sees more clearly what Christ is to him and what he is to Christ. He understands more thoroughly what it is to be one with Christ and Christ with him. He feels the roots of his spiritual life insensibly watered and the work of grace within him insensibly built up and carried forward. He cannot explain or define it. It is a matter of experience which no one knows but he who feels it. And the true explanation of the whole matter is this. There is a special and spiritual presence of Christ in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Jesus meets with those who draw near to his table with a true heart in a special and peculiar way. E. Last, but not least, there is a real spiritual presence of Christ vouchsafed to believers in special times of trouble and difficulty, this is the presence of which St. Paul received assurance on more than one occasion. At Corinth, for instance, it is written, Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace. For I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee. Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10. At Jerusalem, again, when the apostle was in danger of his life, it is written, The night following the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. For as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also in Rome. Acts chapter 23, verse 11. Again, in the last epistle St. Paul wrote, we find him saying, At my first answer no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. Second Timothy chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. This is the account of the singular and miraculous courage which many of God's children have occasionally shown under circumstances of unusual trial, in every age of the church. When the three children were cast into the fiery furnace, and preferred the risk of death to idolatry, we are told that Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, Lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Daniel chapter 3 verse 25 when Stephen was beset by bloody-minded enemies on the very point of stoning him, we read that he said, Behold, I see heaven opened, and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Acts chapter 7, verse 56. Nor ought we to doubt that this special presence was the secret of the fearlessness with which many early Christian martyrs met their deaths, and of the marvelous courage 
which the Marian martyrs, such as Bradford, Latimer, and Rogers, displayed at the stake. A peculiar sense of Christ being with them is the right explanation of all these cases. These men died as they did because Christ was with them. Nor ought any believer to fear that the same helping presence will be with him whenever his own time of special need arrives. Many are overly careful about what they shall do in their last sickness and on the bed of death. Many disquiet themselves with anxious thoughts as to what they would do if husband or wife died or if they were suddenly turned out of house and home. Let us believe that when the need comes, the help will come also. Let us not carry our crosses before they are laid upon us. He that said to Moses, Certainly I will be with thee, will never fail any believer who cries to him. When the hour of special storm comes, the Lord who walks upon the waters will come and say, Peace, be still. There are thousands of doubting saints continually crossing the river who go down to the water in fear and trembling and yet are able at the last to say with David, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Psalm 23, verse 4. This branch of our subject deserves to be pondered well. This spiritual presence of Christ is a real and true thing, though a thing which the children of this world neither know nor understand. It is precisely one of these matters of which St. Paul writes, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But for all that, I repeat emphatically, the spiritual presence of Christ, his presence after the manner of a spirit with the spirits of his own people, is a thing real and true. Let us not doubt it. Let us hold it fast. Let us seek to feel it more and more. The man who feels nothing whatever of it in his own heart's experience may depend upon it that he is not yet in a right state of soul. End of chapter 9, part 1